every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. It wouldn't be the holiday season if there wasn't candy, right? Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Football Grad Podcast. I'm your host, Manuel Veit. And before we get started, let's go over the Russian Premier League results. Well, it all kicked off with Ruben Kazan 0-0 against Ural. Tambov 3-0 against Ufa. Ahmad 1-1 against Tula. Rostov 2-0 Sochi. Krylia Sovetov 0-2 to Senate, who are now top of the table. Loco 0-3 against Spartak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know someone was happy about that result. CSKA 0-1 against Dynamo. A bit of a surprise given how Dynamo's season has been. Krasnodar 1-1 against Orenburg. Yeah, we got the results. We got one happy, happy Timbo. Tim, um, I could hear you there in the background ruining my uh, introduction. So I might as well <laughs> introduce you first. How are you doing? Great. Life is so great again with you in the podcast. In this super energetic time, I had a busy, crazy day at work. Spartak had a beautiful game against the Lokomotiv. And today on the show, we have a massive TV star uh, of Russian television who will just joining us all the way from Tumen. The person who was on a few uh, TV channels this week, legendary Andrew Flint. And he's really tired. Yeah, his, his energy level is a little bit below. It's, uh, it's, it's tough when you have to deal with this level of fame. Um, you know, and, uh, just walking down the streets to get mobbed by people that, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, it, it's, it's a pleasure as always, boys. If anything can wake me up and raise the spirits, it's, it's talking to you boys on the, on the best, best podcast on the Football Red Network. Yeah, but honestly, like, Andrew, just we'll talk about this, uh, this in the episode of the show, but Andrew was on Russian TV. Uh, they uh, filmed his trip uh, to the city was called Zhigulovsk. And I personally, it's in Russian, so it's for some listeners of football that will be hard to understand. But I almost teared up because of Andrew's passion for Russian and specifically Siberian football because I'm from that region and everything. But he was like, showed all the traveling. I'm almost teared up. I showed this video to my granny and she loved it. So all my family loves you, Andrew, and congratulations on massive event. Even if you don't understand this um, video because it's in Russian, take a look. It's very, very interesting. And Andrew is TV superstar. Oh, I, I, I was honored to. Honestly, the best, by, I absolutely mean this because it was mostly about the experience. It certainly wasn't about the football because two men were utterly dreadful, as you'll find out later. But to get the endorsement of a genuine Siberian granny, it doesn't get any better than that. And I mean that. It's absolutely sincerely. So, Tim, I'm, please tell Babulia, Spasiba Balshoi. <laughs> you made it. <laughs> I certainly have. <laughs> yeah, fantastic stuff, guys. Um, Andrew, you know, if you make Russian grandmothers happy around the world, you must have done something right. Um, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's how I feel about it. Tough crowd. <laughs> it, it, yeah. <laughs> Probably the toughest. Um, speaking of a tough crowd, guys, uh, we have to go over our, our new section. You know, I, I know as famous as Andrew is, um, sorry, dude, but you know, there's, there's actual news things going on. But don't worry, uh-huh. we get to talk about uh-huh. your, your adventures in Siberia on, um, yeah. Youth hostels masquerading on as trains uh, in a moment. Um, 
But speaking of youth hostels or youth academies, um, interesting interview by Galitsky in with Sports Are You on Krasnodar. And we all know, of course, Krasnodar is, is his big project. Um, a club that's doing things a little bit different in Russia, right? Um, the idea, of course, being that they are going to be self-sustainable. Now, um, Andrew, it appears that we now have a timeline on when self-sustainability is going to be reached. Um, and this timeline has been set by him for the, not necessarily the club as a whole, but for the youth academy. Yeah, I mean, that was the cornerstone of the entire project from the word go, wasn't it? When, when Galitsky said, look, I'm going to build, build this club, um, based on a, an enormous network. And that's something people need to remember. When we say youth academy, most people envisage, you know, the, the, the cream of the crop at the very center, um, of a club, perhaps on a campus. And that is what Krasnodar have. They have a, they have a campus that is so, so good that it was used by Spain during the World Cup as their training base. Um, now, the Krasnodar have this network that spreads all over Krasnodar Krai. Um, there are literally hundreds and thousands of youngsters all over the region who run through a, a sort of a, a tiered level of um, academy satellite um, centres until they graduate to the, the final place. In fact, there's something like 12,000 students, I think it is. It's enormous. It's absolutely huge. So 300 of them are actually accommodated and educated and fed full-time, full board, um, on site. That's an absolutely enormous number. Uh, it runs, uh, according to Galitsky's estimate, something like $8 million a year. That's the budget they need. Uh, now, Galitsky sold up his share or majority holding at least in Magnet, where he made his fortune. Was it about a year ago? Was it Manu? Year, two years ago, I think it was. Um, and he said he's going to focus on the club. Um, but what he said is, in three years' time, he wants the academy. So, in other words, a funding, a stream of funding of eight million dollars a year at least, to run without his input whatsoever. Uh, I'm not a financial expert, but from what I understand. The way he's doing this, he's set up a, an endowment where the funding that is in place allows for an interest payment to fund the actual day-to-day -day running of the club, while there's also uh, of the academy, sorry, while there is also the um, the actual initial investment still there. So there is a lump sum that is sitting there effectively uh, as a backup. I mean, it's yet another example of how forward thinking and sustainable Krasnodar are as a club. Um, there's, there seems to be very little that they can do wrong with the facilities they put in, the the actual tangible results of all of this investment as well. You know, you talk about youth investment, but quite often there's this cutthroat attitude of we've got to bring in success straight away. Well, Krasnodar are combining that with actual first-team products. Uh, Daniel Udkin is getting a lot of minutes at the moment. Um, we all know about Shappy and Matvey Safanov, of course, and Ivan Ignatyev is, well, admittedly struggling for game time, but you've got real first team players there. And it looks like the future of that production line is going to be extremely, extremely safe, which is just brilliant news for Russian football, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think Krasnodar do a lot of things right. Um, I think that's without a doubt that they are as a club are the model, right? I mean, Tim, we have talked very many times about this, that a self-sustainable club um, is, you know, self-sustainability as football operations go is something that we are so far away from in Russia. And um, when you look at Krasnodar, this is the way every club in Russia should be structured pretty much. Ideally, ideally, that's what we kind of want for. But <clears throat> as we know, as we discussed many times on this podcast, that uh, there's a big share of the clubs which are, state-owned and that uh, is a problem and we see how some clubs just disappear but uh, yeah what the Galtsky is doing is absolutely right he is starting from the bottom he is building this academy trying to produce um, I don't want to sound negative uh, because I'm not an maybe an idealist but I don't really get uh, and agree with his idea of having 11 players which he uh, stated a few years ago uh, in the starting lap of um, Krasnodar and uh, being um, you know, from the academy. 
I think this is a little bit too optimistic, but at the same time, having the strong academy and having, let's say, half of the players from the academy in the starting lineup of of uh, full-time Krasnodar, I think this is this is absolutely a great idea, and he is doing everything right. Uh, I just I'm good at numbers, and like uh, I work in, in finance, so I just did the calculation and just imagining like if um, his expenses are eight million dollars, roughly you can invest I don't know three six percent. So I'm just doing a little bit of calculation. That's a big endowment. So that's again that just shows how passionate, how involved Galitsky is, is about his club, about the youth. Because yeah, like I said, he's starting from 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 the bottom. And ideally, most of the of the clubs in the world should be like that. And actually, just wanted to you know kind of circle it back with you guys. Do you know any other clubs in, let's say, top five leagues who are doing the same thing at the same passionate level that really, really invest in the academies? I can't even come up with, I know Man City does very well with their academy, but maybe you can come up with other who are doing the same thing, because I think this is an interesting topic, who are doing the things right in the European football. So, um, Tim, I visited the Bayern Munich Academy recently, and the construction cost alone was 70, 70 million euros. Oof. And they spent, um, 20 million euros a year on the academy. Wow. But. Does that translate to the young players in the, in the lineup? Because they still buy Goretzka's, try to buy Kai Harvets and all those people. Yeah. That's, the, that's why they are spending that much money because ah, the last player that has made the um, first team from the youth academy was David Alaba. But I was also what I was also told, and here's an interesting one. Um, so their annual profit, annual, annual turnover is around 700 million. So, you know, they spent, um, they spent 10% of the annual turnover once on the academy, right? And it's about, what is it, 3% of the annual turnover that they spend on the youth academy. Oh, I see. Okay. You know, like then you have to take numbers into relations with, no, exactly, with exactly. the income of the club, right? And that's what a lot of people don't do. So Man City spending tons of money in the youth academy, but what's that in relation to the actual money that a club generates as a business, right? So 20 million is a lot. It's uh, it's more than some clubs and a lot of the leagues that we cover have an annual budget. But if you buy on with the with the fourth largest annual turnover in the world, you know, in top ten tor- turnover in the world when it comes to sports teams in general, and I'm throwing in NFL franchises here, right? Um, it's a drop on the hot stone, isn't it? It's always in relations to what you can what you can afford as a business. Imagine if you could shop the shelves of all your local liquor stores at the same time. Well, spoiler alert, you can with Drizzly, the number one alcohol delivery app. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code SAVE5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. It wouldn't be the holiday season if there wasn't candy, right? Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good point to raise, actually, um, about the the proportion of investment. I mean, man, here's a, I'll, I'll throw and add another question in then. Um, I mean, well, buying because you mentioned it, but, uh, you know, in general, for, for both of you boys, really. But, man, pick, pick this up for buying to start with. How much how much impact can a absolute top club that needs success, yes, with huge turnover, admittedly, but needs success quickly, how much how much impact can a youth academy have nowadays? Because so many clubs just simply buy whichever youth product is almost the finished product and, and polish them off. I know a lot of 
you know, a lot of clubs are trying their best to, to develop players and slightly outside the top five within each of the top five leagues, mm. for example. But how much impact can a youth academy have nowadays? Because it, it's so hard to find. That's a very good point. Very good point. You know, it, like Krasnodar yeah. are in a u- unique situation for me because um, you can have an impact <laughs> with them because partly because of the foreign ruling, admittedly, and partly because I actually genuinely think the Russian league is a very competitive league in that, yes, Zenit have huge spending power, but they they have had a lot of troubles on the pitch in terms of consistency. The gap between within the top five is actually, I would say, on average, relatively small. It is possible to make inroads into it. Um, so, what I mean, how much impact can Bayern make from their youth academy? Do it's, you think it's a very good question? Um, and I think this is, it's, it's a question that we might not be able to answer on this podcast, but, but <laughs> you know, to be honest, it's a very good question. And I think I personally believe that as the gap grows bigger between the very top teams and even medium sized clubs, top teams don't necessarily have the time to develop players, right? You, you, you look at the pressure that it, that clubs are big clubs are under. When it comes to producing results, you know, when you are sticking with the example of Bayern, um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there, there's other examples out there. So if you, if you're Bayern and you draw two games in a row, the head coach is already under trouble because you're basically looking at a club that is so, has become so big in relation to most other clubs on the planet that anything but a victory, a decisive victory is pretty much unacceptable, right? So how do you in an environment like that? How do you create or how do you allow players that are young players to succeed in an environment like that? Because they have to function from the get-go, right? Which is why those big clubs are buying players. I'll give you another example. When was the last time Barcelona has produced a youth player that made it straight to the first team? Right? From La Masia. Yeah, I mean, the, yes, well, it's, it's, it's so, true. That was, that's the... I mean, that, that's one of the, the popular examples, isn't yeah. it? Uh, I've seen you know, so many articles produced in the last year, two years, about the decline of, of La Masia. And I don't I'm going to make this podcast explicit because it's, it's bullshit. Um, they haven't produced anyone, right? Because like the, the level that they're at as a club doesn't really allow them to experiment anymore. Well, it, it, this, this, is, this is kind of what I... This is how I see it. And when it comes back to Krasov, this is why I say they're in a unique position. I'd say it's not that La Masia has declined. It's that the, the urgency... And it's only ever going to keep getting worse until football's bubble as a whole bursts. Yeah. Um, but it then, is the rest of the urgency has, has overtaken academies in general. Very few individual academies stand mm. out. It's a lot of youth development now is being done successfully over a lot of clubs. Exactly. And each individual club's success rate is drops. But I don't think it's a, each individual academy is getting worse. It's so just the rolled, game is overtaken. You rolled us back, right? To being mm. a club like Krasnodar. You're, mm-hmm. you're in a great position because, um, you can spend relatively little money in relation to other clubs. And if you, you're actually playing in a competition that is far more forgiving in terms of producing young players, right? I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm using Krasnodar. You could also use, uh, a team in the Netherlands or a team in Portugal or a team in Major League Soccer. You know what I mean, right? An environment yeah. that's much more forgiving. So if you're a team in a medium-sized market and you're in that uh, lower middle-sized bubble of clubs, um, investing an enormous amount of money, what was the number again? It was 8 million euros, right? That Krasnodar Krasn- Krasn- are going to invest in the Youth Academy. Am I correct with that, Tim? Yeah, I am. I, I agree with you. And I think you actually um, it's a very accurate comparison because we also need to remember that Russian League is it's probably in top 10 European leagues. And it is a league which is because of its, let's call it quote unquote wealth, um, not EPL wealth, but wealth compared to let's say Belgian or even Netherlands league, <clears throat> can be just purely a producing league like Belgium or Netherlands, which you know pretty much work on uh, production, like on producing younger planes and selling them. But uh, Russian league is in that category of leagues. Um, some players just stay there because of um, good contracts, but a lot of players see. In stone and uh, well, Krasnodar is exactly a club which is in that Naldo moved to, to Spain. Um, they also sell a few other planes, uh, players to Europe. So 
I think we, I think with the, your positioning, Krasnodar, and talking about this in the right category, even we're talking about a fairly wealthy and big investments, it's still a club which, you know, a league which produces. And I really, really hope that one of those, some of those youngsters, which Krasnodar eventually will produce, will move to those European leagues and get a chance to play. And, you know, especially growing up with that European mentality, which Galitsky puts in his club, I think those kids will have a little bit more chances of doing successful in Europe compared to the probably Soviet uh, generation. Yeah, I think so too. But, um, Tim, I'm glad you brought up Soviet because that's a great transition to my next topic. You know, I saw this headline. <laughs> Perfect. And, uh, every time FS, every time I see FSB, I think KGB. <laughs> and, um, I saw FSB in this headline and then I saw Gazprom Arena and I didn't even have to read the article. I knew exactly what this was about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, my favorite stadium project in the world, you know, the Gazprom Arena. We, the, the two of us have, of course, some very nice memories from this place and, uh, seen so many, many good games there, World Cup games, but, um, fraudulent, fraudulent practices when it came to the construction of the re arena. I, I am absolutely shocked. I mean, it's, just, it's come out of the blue, hasn't it, Manu? I mean, it was only a project that, that took uh, what, over a, almost a decade longer than it was planned to. And why on earth people think that there could have been, you know, ill play here? Um, I mean, look, let's, let, let's be honest. Okay, on the very, very surface, the superficial surface, the Gazprom Arena is... An absolutely stunning structure. It is absolutely fantastic. The facilities are brilliant. It looked great. The experience of fans is wonderful. So a lot gets glossed over. A lot gets forgotten when, and the club themselves, and I am very specifically removing the club from the construction here. The club themselves are very well, it is very well run in terms of fan experience, the social media team and, and how they add value to going to the matches. But, <laughs> Big butt. And this is why we are not surprised at all, right, Manny? Um, when the World Cup arrived, um, before the World Cup arrived, I should say, the stories about foreign workers being brought in, North Korean workers, there was a huge investigation by a Norwegian magazine, Josima, into the thousands of, um, North Korean workers who were effectively shipped over sh purely so that their wages could be sent back. Um, they, the conditions were appalling. Just from a human rights point of view, alarm bells should have been ringing. But even if you didn't read into that side of things, then the time, I mean, how does a construction project, and you've talked about this before, Manu, when we've talked about the VTB arena, um, at Dinamo Moscow, you know, when you're, when you, when a construction project is delayed, it doesn't mean that the costs have dried up. You know, you've got all of the, personnel waiting we've got all the equipment waiting that costs money itself but what on earth did people think was happening you know if, if a stadium that grew to as far as i understand over a billion dollars in total construction costs all in um it, you know how how people cannot suspect that there was <laughs> there was ill doing is beyond me um what the only surprise for me is why it took this long for a an actual proper investigation into the the contracts that were handed out, subcontracted out. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens here. Um, although I say interesting, I strongly suspect given um, the uh, rather well-known company that is heavily invested into the club, the influence they have on goings on around St. Petersburg and Russian football in general, I suspect that this will quietly go away within a short period. But anyhow, surprise, let's, surprise. let's hope. <laughs> well, and the, no, the, the interesting fact that, uh, you know, that um, Mutko, who is very involved in the government, he was in charge of the, you know, the whole construction building of the World Cup facilities. So I'm not sure how they will go about it. I'm not suspecting anything, but it just, um, I agree with Andrew that uh, there is a slight chance that this might just go away. I wrote um, a feature article um, all the way back. Oh, my God, this must have been in... 2015 um, when I got an exclusive tour of the stadium and 
Yeah, it, it was it was really interesting, you know, like seeing the way the stadium was constructed and um, talking to the people involved of the of the construction project. Um, the the article actually got published in print. Um, yes, I know those things still exist. Um, at Howler Magazine, um, I still have the issue, and I remember going through the project details um, with my father, who works in engineering, is a construction engineer, multi-billion projects around the world before he retired. Um, and, um, going through the cost calculations and, uh, yeah. Um, when we went through some of the cost calculations, you, you should have seen his face, guys. <laughs> 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 the fact checking, the fact checking was interesting. Let's and, say it and, that way. And I like that the, the Germany, the most efficient nation. Engineers, the most efficient profession. I can imagine how he was baffled looking at Russian. Well, it was really interesting. So we did it by, we did a per seat calculation actually, because there is actually a price that you're supposed to pay per seat when you build a stadium. So that's how you calculate, um, the, the, the price for facilities, right? And once the price is over a certain amount for per seat, um, you know, there is certain factors that you have to calculate. And the, 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 the I remember at the time, the, the, the construction company in charge argued that um, the Gazprom Arena was the most expensive stadium in the world because, of, and, and some of it was true. I mean, they did change the plans halfway, like halfway through. They went from fifty thousand um, arena to a seventy thousand. So my dad said that that will attribute um, an extra twenty five percent to the costs. Then you add maybe another ten percent to the costs to, for the fact that it is built on very difficult ground. But that still left, I think, around 300 million euros that were added. <laughs> <laughs> where, where do you think that 300 million is sitting right now, Manu? Um, just hazard a guess for us. <laughs> Maybe a Dacha in Sochi? <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be the most luxurious Dacha of all time. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I mean, just, just very, very briefly, boys, while on, on the topic, you know, this, um, the the concepts of uh, let's say underhand construction contracts being handed out for World Cup Stadia is not confined to St Petersburg. It just happens to be on a much, just an enormous scale. It's just the most Newcastle beautiful Bay. example. You know, it is just like because it's so because the the comparison is the Allianz Arena, right, which is like the same size of stadium, and the Allianz cost I think three hundred fifty million euros to build. And the stadium in St. Petersburg was 1.1 billion, which is the official figure. And we all know that figure isn't right. Because it was 1.1 billion euros two years before it was finished. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. So when people ask me why I don't like Zenit, and we have a couple of our friends on, on that <laughs> football grad network, Nico specifically. Well, here's a little bit of answer why I don't really like that team that much. Yeah. But hey, speaking of you know Sochi and Duchess, that's our next topic right there. Um, goalkeeper Chanaev. <laughs> Good transition. Fabulous, fabulous Yeah, <laughs> goalkeeper Chanaev. Uh, I'm gonna keep this piece because I read this in Championnat. I, I raised my eyebrows a little bit. Uh, I looked at where Sochi are in the standings. If a keeper from from Sochi is in the talks of um, maybe shooting, like should replace Gulam in the in the national team. Um, how bad of a team would they be if he wasn't there? <laughs> I, I leave that open to anyone like, who wants to jump on uh, I, C3. I, I would like to take this because I would like to take a little bit of like a bigger a picture approach in terms of the Russian goalies because honestly, uh, we thought that we were taken care of because uh, Akinfeyev was such a big uh, player and he was just consistent number one goalie for such a long time we didn't even worry because we thought okay the all other goalkeepers are good enough to be number two number three but once I can feel retired oof honestly Guilherme he's a good goalkeeper but he makes mistakes he made the recent mistake in the game which we'll talk about against Spartak Loco which was a very very key mistake and he does make those mistakes um Lunov who is a Zenit goalkeeper hasn't been consistent um Janaev who is right now number three um he had a good spell at Rostov, then he had a really weird spell in Poland, he had a, a good time there, but it was really strange why he went to Poland. Now he is back in a new team, which is Sochi, and it's also, I think it's good for him because he's getting lots of 
the Sochi's has to defend a lot as a, as a fairly new team. Uh, he gets a lot of work, but at the same time, as we all know, the good goalkeeper is not who saves 50 shots and, and saves 46 out of those shots. It's the goalkeeper who has one shot and saves one. It's like in, it's like you have to be consistent. You have to be focused like players like Manuel Neuer and other goalkeepers, the top level goalkeepers who really get, have to save only one, two, two big chances in the game and they keep their, their team just not, not losing the goal. So, um, it's, it's really this conversation about Janaev being a first number one goalkeeper in Russia. It's, it's, it's because we don't have options right now. And, uh, it again sh- shows the stre- strength of the Akinfeev goalkeeper who was really number one for so many years. And once he retired, we, we don't, I don't think we have an obvious number one. And that little bit worries me ahead of Euro 2020. So what's, what's your opinion, guys? You know what, Tim? I, I actually would counter that by saying I think we do have options. I just cannot understand why they're not being used. And by options, I'm talking about the the younger guys, and especially your your number one keeper, Maximienko, for example. Oh, I love this option. Well, I mean, it's I mean, we've in all seriousness, you've got Maximienko and Matvey Safnov, are the two stand out. But even after them, um, uh, uh. Uh, Anton Shunin, uh, Dynamo, I think he's a fabulous keeper. I think he's a, a far more reliable keeper than Janev. And if you want to go down the experienced route, then, okay, I understand you need an experienced keeper in the squad, perhaps, to balance out the younger players. But I, I, if you've got younger players who are proving themselves and have been for more than just this season, then I cannot understand why why, why Hulk, Matt, uh, Maximienko and Safanov are being held back, both of them, at the same time. Um Personally, I would, put, I would put at least one of them in the squad, if not both of them, because they are going to be the two long-standing keepers in the Russian squad, unless something drastic happens. So I don't really see why they need to be sheltered much longer. They're already full-blown professionals. They're not youth players anymore. They're first-team players now. Um, so, uh, Guilherme, the, the insistence of Chichesov to pick him is, is a little baffling for me, if I'm honest. When, you know, when we talk about uh, Chaloff not being called up because he doesn't fit the style of a, of a center forward that Chichesov wants. He likes Juve, he likes his big, strong target man who can physically intimidate other players as well as being good on the ball. Well, I understand at least a part of that logic. But when it comes to a goalkeeper, Russia don't have such a defined style of goalkeeper in the way that, for example, you know, at Liverpool and other clubs, they like to have oh, yeah. goalkeepers who play with their feet. Um, it's that's not such a that's not such a thing with the Russians. It's not such a style that the Russian side have. So I don't think it's that much of a problem in terms of style. It's not a problem of experience. So get get Maximienko and, and Safanov in the squad as far as I say. It's funny how it's supposed to be a conversation about Jareff and we pretty much didn't say anything about him. Yeah, but it's it's that that's because we shouldn't really, because I think Andrew is right, because you need to go with you. At some point you need to bring the young players and Janaev is thirty two. Right. Yeah. He's, he's playing. He's playing in Sochi. <laughs> I mean, come on, guys. If you want to play the national team, you have to play in the top four club. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's uh, the one thing in his favor, I suppose, is that Janai, by definition, is very busy. He makes a lot of saves. Yeah, Technically, I, he's alright. I'm busy. It's certainly not because he's um, one of the best, anyway. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's a criteria. I think it's a criteria of your young keeper. You know, oftentimes those young keepers, uh, you, you know, someone like Neuer, um, of course made his mark first at Schalke when they didn't have a very good year and he kind of was pressed into service because the keepers around him were doing badly. Mark Andre Terstegen, um, he became a world class. His first steps in the Bundesliga were when they were battling against relegation. Success, successful in the end, right? But, uh, Favre at the time started him because the other two keepers obviously didn't work out and Testing was busy. So for a young keeper, I think it's like if you, if you're breaking into the league, that's a good thing. But if you're an experienced keeper, you're not going to be measured by that. My opinion anyways, you know, that stage. And what's up with that move to Poland anyways? Um, you know, I just. That was. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm with, I'm with, uh, I, I'm with Andrew. I think there's younger players that you could play. Um, you know, I would have maybe uh, added Anton Metrushkin, the keeper from Sion as well, 
But yeah, he's he's yeah, been having yeah. he had some issues in the beginning of the season. He's like now back in the in the first squad. He had to play at the at the U twenty one because they got absolutely smashed in their first game four one against Basel. Um and then he didn't play he didn't feature for um nine games. Um but is now the starting goalkeeper again in Sion. So th- there's another keeper that you know you wanna see in the future be called up maybe and give him a chance because he's twenty three. He can play the ball and, um, he was part of that youth team that, um, did very well as well, right? So, um, those are the kind of players you want to give a chance because, uh, no offense to Russia, they're not going to win the Euros, right? You want to, you want to yeah. keep, you want to keep building. Um, great transition right there. Building. Um, Eric Stoffelshaus, you guys remember him? He's yeah. a good builder. He can build clubs. He knows his stuff. He's been in Canada, Russia. Yeah. And, uh, soon in Southampton to rebuild a site that got smashed 9-0. Um, and you said that the he's the biggest football grad podcast fan because he's Russia, Canada, and Germany and England. Yeah. He, you know, you should be, uh, he should be all over it. Probably listening, you know, and has a burner account to retweet our stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, he could be our in, Andrew, if he signs for Manchester United, but I think Southampton is, uh, seems to be a more likely destination. Or what do you think? Well, it's it's an interesting one, really, because the headlines everybody would have seen, of course, like you mentioned, the utterly catastrophic 9-0 defeat to, to Leicester. That's the joint record scoreline in the Premier League. It's the highest away win in the in the English in the Premier League era, at least. Um, and everybody is talking doom and gloom about Southampton, um, about Mister Hassenhutel, who came in with a, a well, obviously a very good reputation before, and he, he started very positively with the steps he was taking. But a lot of people are, and it, it comes back again to that age-old debate about how cutthroat the world is nowadays in, in football. You know, they, that result, Southampton are struggling with results on the pitch, uh, but that result is throwing him right into the debate for um, for being fired soon. I think it would be a very poor decision of Southampton to 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 get rid of him. I don't really see the point because, and this is why I come back to Stoffelshaus. Stoffelshaus's um, expertise is is like you mentioned is extremely extremely high. He has the experience of developing clubs, bringing in an identity of players, not just good players individually, but an an identity that fit the club. Southampton already have that in place. They have one of actually the best long-term recruitment projects that and they use the unbelievable amount of data and analysis um and they have a a a black box system where they have analysts working permanently to build up a huge shortlist of players that could fit every type of position and characteristic they just simply don't necessarily have the funds to compete on a higher level so stoffel's house coming in i'm not trying to play down stoffel's house's um his abilities, he is an ext- extremely good at what he does. I'm not entirely sure he would make the type of difference that Southampton need. Um, but Southampton certainly would benefit in the sense that he does have a reputation. Perhaps he could draw in a few more individual players. Um, but uh, to be honest with you, I actually think, and this is not just me being biased, I think he would have a bigger effect, much bigger effect, at Manchester United because the resources would be much higher for all of their faults. The Glazers do pile more and more debt onto the club by, by investing in play. If they do put up funds, they just don't invest them very well. And that's exactly where Stoffel's house would come in. He really could do a much better job, I think, and, and see more effect, uh, at Manchester United. It's not just because I'm jealous and I want Manchester United to be run better, but, um, which is true, but I think. I think that's the better def- destination for him. Uh, that's just my opinion anyway. Hmm. You know, uh, I think that uh, a club that appointed a former hockey guy in Ralf Krüger, like Southampton did, is more likely to appoint someone like Eric Stoffelshaus. You know, that outside-of-the-box thinking um, is something that seems to be more suited to them. Of course, also Ralf Krüger, the Canadian connection. Uh, Ralf Krüger has gone back to hockey. He's now coaching in the NHL. Uh, just a little side note um, for you on that one. I I don't know. I think Stoffelshaus, um, considering where he's been and where he, what he's done, 
Manchester United are a huge club. Are they going to appoint someone who's not that well known of a name? Um, you know, we, we've seen the work that he's done. He's worked in a very difficult environment at Locomotive. And mm. we all know how difficult that environment was. And he's basically, with some very smart business, turned them, turned them into a team that's playing in the Champions League again. Right. And that's, that takes some doing. Um, I mean, I, I, I think, I think, Manu, you're right, actually. But I would like to just make it clear what I mean is that I think it is more likely he will go to Southampton for mm. basically the reasons you mentioned, where I think he would be better. And, and again, I mean, just at a subjective point of view, um, I think Manchester United would benefit more from him. But I agree. I think it's more likely that Manchester United would go for a player a former player who has a emotional connection to the club, which is not exactly a great business appointment, but that's how they operate at the moment, or a big name. I, I agree with you. I think it's more likely he will go to Southampton if it is a straight choice between the two. Or he could go back to Canada. I know the Whitecaps are desperately looking for a sporting director. <laughs> Manny, you are turning into the Whitecaps agent here. And I think we, I think we know there are other candidates who we would certainly prefer to see. Um, interesting characters. Shall we say, yeah. uh, with long, long careers. <laughs> I, 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 I could give them a whole list of people that they can hire, and I keep them, even put them in connection. Apparently, they're still having trouble finding someone, even if like I'm telling them people are available. But I don't know. Maybe I should be running a football club, but not them. Um, <laughs> but that's just my, that's just my, my view of things. Uh, speaking of view of things, uh, um, guys, the view at the Yekaterinburg Arena is apparently not that good. Oh, we have someone who's going to argue that so hardly. Uh, I'm trying to bite my tongue, but I can't. This is just ridiculous, boys. I mean, seriously. All right, okay, sorry. I'm just going to have a run. You're going to have to put up with it for 30 seconds. I give you two minutes. Okay, this is a short news section. We're 40 minutes in. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, seriously, we we, we really need to... We could be done for... You know, yeah, false it's okay. We don't short, have, short we don't really have anything else to discuss. So just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Let's, let's start. You catch a arena. It gets all of this bad press about being a weird, ugly stadium with the, the, the stands outside it. But the one thing, the one thing that you cannot, cannot accuse it of is the view of the pitch. The sight lines are just brilliant. It is a seriously steep gradient to the stands so wherever you are in the stadium you get a genuinely brilliant view of the pitch now match tv um they they brought a commentator to to commentate on one of the recent games and he complained that he couldn't see the pitch properly now the he, the thing is that the stadium is it is very open and cold because it has a huge open space actually between the roof and the actual stands themselves so if you're sitting outside the stands, it is very cold, admittedly. So the commentators want to sit inside. Now, the viewing booths for the commentators, admittedly, those views are not absolutely perfect, but they very rarely are at most Premier League grounds. When I've been around reporting at most Russian Premier League clubs and I see these booths, at Ufa, for example, it is a tiny little closet that you genuinely cannot see half the pitch from. Never hear a complaint there, do we? Um, so... To, to complain about the pitch position, uh, the, sorry, the commentating position, the view of the pitch is, is, is silly from that point of view. But also, you've got to remember how the process works. When a broadcaster comes to a stadium, they, it's their responsibility to request a position for their commentator. It's not as if the match TV have never seen the Akastenberg Arena before, have no idea what it looks like, have never commentated there before. So where on earth this complaint has started from, it's just so ridiculous, so pathetic, I cannot understand it. Um, what I will say, what I will say in the, in the interest of, of balance, because, you know, we are, we are reporters, we are journalists, and we must be fair. Um, inside the club, a lot of people actually do not like the stadium. They, they're not fond of working there. And mostly it is because it is so open. Um, and admittedly, like I said, these inside commentary positions are not quite ideal for the cold months that we are now in. The snow has arrived. Yellow ball is out. I saw it on TV. It's out. Well, you know, this, this, this is, this is the thing. It, it is not, the temperature is not, is not great. But my point is compared to, well, two things compared to other stadiums in the division, 
Um, it's a ridiculous complaint. And secondly, this is not the first time Match TV have commentated. Uh, okay, so what, you know. but there's one thing I do need to say about the stadium before I give Tim his proper time to discuss what he really wants to talk about. The only thing he wants to talk about in this podcast. Thank you. But uh, <laughs> this is this is one thing that I really want to say about the stadium. I have it on record that the two stands that were still poking out out of the stadium, you know, mm. it's now almost 2020, right? 18 months have passed since the World Cup has ended. Those stands are still there. They were supposed to form a new stadium, two new stadiums in rural Russia to support grassroots football. Oh, I'm calling a lie when I see it, and I'm calling a lie. Because these wow. stands are obviously still there. You know. And I have it <laughs> yeah. on records that it's not supposed to be there anymore. That's that's it, just it, yo. It is it is quite hard to hide those things, admittedly. Yeah, so they're obviously pretend. still there. <laughs> yeah, I can't pretend that they're not, it's true. Um it, interestingly though, the the it was a matter of of cost is what um mm-hmm. what Apparently the Russian state was going to pay for the stands to be put somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, that was the original. That was part of the original um, World Cup legacy mm. bit, if you like. Um, yeah. That be word that bit committees love. Um, I was quoted a price of around. Uh, it was meant to be around fifteen million dollars. The whole process of dismantling them, leaving the Ekaterinburg Arena as it was intended to oh. be after the World Cup, and moving the structures to where they were destined to go to. And the problem lay in the and who was going to foot the bill and originally it was supposed to be the the federal state um budget but the ownership of the stadium is where it gets complicated because it is actually being run by a construction company at the moment the club actually pay rent to play there at the moment um but as i understand in 2020 so in january in fact um, that deal runs out. So who will run the stadium from January onwards is up for debate. It could be the club. It could be the company if they, uh, if they bid to renew their contracts or not. And that is just confusing. It mm. doesn't help anybody. Um, and any company who takes over ownership of the stadium, they're not going to want to, obviously, if they're already paying for a contract to then pay to, well, will effectively diminish the size and value of it because it, those stands are occasionally used. Don't forget for Spartak, mm. for speed, for the big games. So yeah. I don't see it coming down soon. I see it as uh, FIFA Legacy striking again, and I can't wait to see for FIFA Legacy to strike at Qatar when all those temporary stadiums are supposed to help third world countries in Africa. Um, I'm just gonna call. We are already explicit. I already said bullshit once, so I'm gonna call bullshit again. But um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, 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 enough bullshit, Tim um, Spartak. Uh, yeah, I I rewatched the highlights today. That that was beautiful. Uh, and Domenico Tedesco jumping up in the air towards the end of the game, I believe uh, that was the third goal. Yeah, you must have just like. You know, there must have been a huge stone that must have dropped from your heart. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? what's good about it? Because there was a plan. It wasn't like you said, like you told me it originally when Tadesco just appeared as a potential candidate for being the Spartak coach. Don't expect anything pretty. Be ready for defensive football. I don't think it was pretty, but there was a game plan. And the issue with Kononov, for me, it was that I don't think there was a game plan. At least I couldn't see it. He tried, he spoke nicely about trying to play into beautiful football and all that, but I didn't really see how Spartak was supposed to play. This one was not pretty, but I totally understood what the game plan was. He moved Bakayev into the center, they played on counter-attack, they knew that uh, Lokomotiv played a very, very tough game in Juventus, they were tired, so the first half they were really sitting back, and the second uh, half they hit them on uh, counter-attack. So I think... You know, I don't want to speak, I don't want to get excited as much as I want to, but um, well, I'm getting excited. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, Manu, maybe I, I kind of looking for your opinion on, on that. This should I expect from Tedesco, like this careful counter-attacking football? 
can he build something else or this is what kind of what we are kind of stuck with because he said that don't expect anything until the winter break mm. i just need to figure out i need to get the points and then i will put my plan into place over the winter break at florida cup no no i mean i do think that that's how his football is built you know and i think that you go into you know when you, when you watch when i watch the game back that's when you look at the goals that were scored, they they were were typical for the sort of football that he plays. Um, only that this time he scored a few more goals. His side scored a few more goals than you know they typically did with Schalke, and maybe because he has has the players for it. And you know people change, um, people people evolve. I mean this the, the starting lineup with that three five two, um, and um, two very fast forwards. I think that is something that suits him as a coach as well and the way he builds teams. And I think that you're going to see much more of that. Um, maybe too to add, I think that maybe that the Russian Premier League suits that style a little bit better. You know, when you go down the, the history yeah. of coaches that have succeeded in Russian football, it's, it's a much more defensive league than the Bundesliga is. It's, um, a league where, especially in the months that we're getting in now, you know, much more structured football than you see in Germany. Um, in Germany, Germany is the highest scoring league in Europe, right? Um, Russia is nowhere near that. The, the football is, that's played there is very different, especially the smaller sides are very well structured defensive sides. Rostov have been successful with a very defensive setup. Lokomotiv, when they won the Russian Championship, they were very successful with a defensive setup. Um, even Zenit play mostly with three at the back, right? Uh, that turns into five in the back. And I think that as a league, that's just the, how the, the competition operates. So maybe as a coach, that suits him better. I think, I think you're absolutely right. Who is one of the recent most successful coaches in Russia? Kurban Berdyev. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's, see, but my, I am personally a Spartak fan. I'm totally fine with this. If you get the results, and to be honest, I kind of enjoyed uh, the game because there was a fight. Spartak players were fighting. I saw that there was energy, and we won the game. So, like, I don't mind that. But in general, Spartak is conceived as a team which plays beautiful football, all this la-la-la-la, and I'm really, really worried that this will eventually start being uh, vict- um, against uh, Tedesco's uh, tactics. So I'm a little bit worried about that, that, you know, the press and the fans will get against it. Like, you know, the Capello story and Real Madrid, all that stuff. Mm. But personally, me, I'm totally fine with this. Yeah, I think that's really the number one thing. You know, he will have to get people on the side. Um, ultimately, he's going to be defined by success. And, um, taking, taking a really quick look at the standings, you know, there's, there's, there's a huge gap between, uh, Spartak and, and the, and the top five that ultimately will get them into Europe. I mean, yes, there's always the outside chance that someone in that top five will win, um, the Russian Cup, right? And then, um, six might be enough, but, um, currently that six spot is occupied by, <laughs> where is he? The, the the guy that is uh you know goes to the most beautiful stadium in the world. Um, <laughs> well, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, right, but uh, actually, I go to the two most beautiful stadiums in the world. I just like to correct you. Uh, the Yolog, of course, is the most beautiful. Um, <laughs> but uh, that is it's, it's it's a good point you make though. Um, I think actually maybe we were a little bit too quick to to condemn Tedesco's appointment. I um, am not, I'm not going to jump on the um I'm not going to. You know, no, no. We, we need to, we need early. to temper expectations and revisions of our expectations. Yeah. It yeah. is only the first blockbuster game, but he, I don't think many, I don't think many people would have got their tactics as spot on as he did on the day. It was absolutely mm. perfect for the, for the game. Um, and, um, I don't think every game is going to be quite like that because I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to stick my neck out here. I get the feeling that Tedesco will be good for the big games. It's how he deals with the gritty moving Kazakhs of this world. That, that's going to be, um, that's going to be a test, but it's uh, the signs are promising. Um, and, uh, you know, he's got to get past Oral first. Uh, once he can do that, then we can mm. judge him. 
you know, to be his first first coaching position was of course in Bundesliga two at Aue, um, at a place of Germany that gets very cold. So he he will be familiar to the yellow ball, which I want to repeat is out. I saw the yellow ball. It's out. Uh, we're getting we're getting we're two days away from November. We know <laughs> what that means. Manu, uh, it was actually an official uh, RPL no, statement. Don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead, Tim. Tell me about the yellow ball. <laughs> there, there was a patient statement that we play 13 games of normal bones, and once the 14 game stops, okay, we have to bring out the yellow yeah, ball. Yeah, uh, good. Uh, the yellow ball is out. Um, <laughs> uh, that's actually, you know, a, a good transition there, Tim. Thank you very much, because yes, 14 games played. That means we're one game away from halftime. It's unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, um, it feels like the season just started, but we are getting a very good picture of things. And I, I'm going to ask both of you, um, starting with you, Tim, what have been the things that, you know, at this stage have stood out for you, winners and losers? Um, really curious to hear what you think. Uh, I'm very surprised by Ahmad's position. Ahmad is second last from the bottom. Uh, Generally strong club with strong financial position. They fired Rahimov. They pointed on Shalimov. I'm very, very surprised at that. Dynamo position also in the relegation mm-hmm. playoff bottom. And I'm surprised, uh, about Zenit, uh, which doesn't make me happy as Spartak fan, but, um, Zenit usually, um, goes through a very tough period once Champions League starts. Uh, they really focus on that and they really you know, they play well usually in Champions League. We, they went to playoff and generally they do fairly well and they fight to the last game to at least participate in Europa League or uh, the playoff of Champions League. And that really makes always the effect on their league position. Right now, they have uh, plus three points and um, I didn't see any really decline in their results. The results, the most importantly, uh, and especially that game against Rostov 6-1 was very, very impressive. So those, those are my surprises. Uh, well, obviously my team is also, I expected them to do a little bit better than what we have. But uh, yeah, I would say uh, Ahmad, Dynamo uh, from the negative side and Zenit from the positive side uh, because they still have to play um, like what, mm. three games in the Champions League. But usually the October is very, very tough for them. I really remember a few games when they went to Anji. And they played 2-2 when Anji was absolutely just, like, you know, destroyed by the financial unsuccess. And, um, usually that happens. So, um, for me, that's, well, I'm not happy with this, but Zenit is doing very well. Uh, Andrew, what do you think? I'm curious, curious your opinion. <laughs> well, actually, you know, I'm going to say Rostov for me, um, are the, are the big winners. You mentioned, of course, we've, we've alluded in the past many times to Corbin Badev's success and, his success at Rostov was, like you say, built on a very defensive foundation. But I'm really, really enjoying how how they've sort of gained in confidence, I guess, on the pitch. They've become a lot more expansive this year. Um, and actually, they have the joint second-worst defensive record this season. They're scoring goals and conceding them. Not uh, conceding as many as um, Oral. Oral like to entertain people, you see, at both ends of the pitch. So that's why we do that. It's all part of a grand plan. Um <laughs> But, but Rostov, um. They are also the only team in the top six with a minus goal record. But keep going. The, yeah, that, that's going to stay minus. I'll, I'll, I'll tell people now. That's not going to, that's not going to change really. <laughs> um, but no, seriously, Rostov, um, have good, sensible recruitment. We've talked about how their midfield is going to be one of the best midfields or attacking units, should we say. Mm-hmm. Um, when Pavel Bamaev is registered over winter, uh, Yeremienko, Velin Popov, um, Eldor Shomorodov, but also unheralded stars. Um, you know, they, they've got, uh, Matthias Norman in midfield, who, who basically flew under the radar entirely in his time in England. A lot of players, a lot of people probably don't even realize he was in England, um, at Brighton. But, um, Rostov, for me, surprised that they are keeping their heads right up there. Um, you know, level with locomotive ahead of Krasadar as things mm. stand. Um, so them certainly. Um, I think in terms of disappointment, it's hard to get past Ahmad. Um, they, their trademark has been, if anything, sort of a, a very strong defensive 
units at home, and yet they are really, really struggling. Um, I do think they are better than their position, even in terms of their position, but you can't look past their lack of goals. So uh, when they signed Andres Ponte over the summer, I thought, good signing, should get them enough goals to at least keep them going. Um, but yeah, Akhmat for me are, are, are very disappointing. Um, so, uh, and possibly that's an honourable mention, Sochi, mm-hmm. um, Saul Pope's favourite club. They have, they have kept going pretty well. Their recruitment should have looked a bit more, you know, marquee signings, a bit more headline grabbing, but they have started to turn the corner, I think. So I think Sochi have a very good shout at survival. Yeah, I'm, I am actually a combination of you two a little bit. I think definitely Rostov. It's hard to look beyond them uh, when it comes to positive surprises. So I think, Andrew, you stole my sandwiches a little bit. Um, you know, Eldor Shomorodov has been outstanding. The, the guy with the, um, the plastic cape, you know, just uh, fantastic. I mean, him and, um, Alexander Sobolev when it comes to players. Just absolutely, you know, positive surprise. Alexander Zobolev, the, the, the player that you wrote a really nice article about Andrew on footballgrad.com, right? He's been linked to, um, I believe Manchester United for, for one, Arsenal. Um, but same with Eldor Shoromorov, um, who's, I've seen links with, um, Schalke. Um, those, those, those little stories really stand out for me positively and Rostov in general stand out for me positively. I think for me, the biggest disappointment, is Dynamo. Um, it's really hard to, to look at, look at what they have done, especially financially, and then see them on a relegation spot. Um, even though it's a re- relegation playoff spot, but yeah, that's for me, that's a massive disappointment when it comes to, for, when it comes to club performances. And they really need to turn it on because, you know, um, when you, when you bring in players like Maximilian Philip for 20 million euros and you, you're sitting in uh, 13th spot at halftime of the league, that's simply not acceptable, uh, in my opinion. So yeah, that's, that's mine. Um, but yeah, guys, that's it. We're out of time. Um, once again, it flew by unbelievably fast. So <laughs> Tim, I'm going to start with you. The floor is yours. What do you want to pluck this week? You know what? When you know, I'm, I'm switched a little bit this week. I will gonna plug Andrew's TV super appearance on his uh, TV show because honestly, I maybe because I have a relationship to the region because I'm Siberian and to me that means so much. But the passion which Andrew demonstrates in this video, going to Zhigulovsk and watching his team lose three nothing away in autumn. Uh, uh, I'm plugging Andrew's video. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on your uh, Heart of Football um, Facebook group. It just um, this is this what I'm plugging. Honestly, my friend, like I honestly today I watched it in the morning. I almost teared up. It was so passionate. It's great. So watch Andrew Flint uh, travel uh, with his FC team. In. Oh, Tim, you're too kind. You're too kind, Tim. Um, well, if you'll be pleased to know, um, Tim, that I've got one more. Not quite as uh, professionally done uh, job to play, but this weekend coming up, I will be going to Dimitrovgrad and also to Yekaterinburg as well. Um, and in true in true Siberian fashion, I have absolutely no idea exactly how I'm getting there. So uh, it'll either be by car, by Mashrutka <laughs> overnight. Oh. Uh, it, it, it is impossible to tell. I might be traveling with the ultras. I've certainly been meeting them there. Um, we're not really going to be caring about the football itself, but, um, so, uh, yeah, if you want to follow something interesting, <laughs> then follow, follow me on Twitter there. I'll post, um, uh, I'll post videos and updates of, of the journey. I don't know how it's going to end, but that's what makes it even more interesting. <laughs> Andrew, Manu will hate me for this because I'm going over the, the, the time of the podcast, but how did Ultras take you? Because Ultras are usually very serious people, and I saw that you were really friends with them. Well, it, to long story short, I accepted their offers of vodka, samagon, and beer, so they they, they accepted <laughs> me for that. But um, they 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 would seen me around, and um, this was the first time I'd really spoken to them in depth. And um, they ended up offering me a scarf, so I feel accepted into their little group now. So I will be. I think I'm. I think I can. I can get away with it now. Perfect. 
Yeah, good stuff. Um, you, you just make sure someone has your emergency contacts at all time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will. Don't worry, don't worry. I've got uh, the the club know where I am, so I'm hoping so, that. So the no new iPhones, they have like this this like automatic thing message that they send when you have like a hard crash on your bike. I recommend one of those for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll try that, but um, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'm not sure the signal will reach into the depths of Siberia as so I'm traveling uh, to the meter. We'll see. Yeah, that's that's maybe the only limitation. But yeah, boys, um, we're unfortunately out of time. So before I go real quick, I'm just going to um, pluck a couple of things. You can find, of course, this podcast and the other podcast that we do at Football Grad Live. That's where we are on Twitter. Um, you can follow me at Manuel Vef. You can follow uh, Tim at Russian Tim 61, right, Tim? Correct. Thank you. And then, of course, you can follow Andrew at Andrew M-I-J Flint. Um, so please do that. And you can follow me at Manuel Fate. M-A-N-U-E-L-V-E-T-H. Yeah, and we, we tweet about all sorts of stuff. Um, for example, Andrew hanging out with uh, Ultras, Tim about punk music, and uh, I'm off to Germany on Friday to do some Bundesliga stuff. So that's uh, that's the sort of content you are going to be finding there. So yeah, guys, um, give us a follow. Hope you like this podcast. Until next week, das Vedanje. <laughs>the holiday season if there wasn't candy right celebrate the holiday season with the holiday crush they've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun packed challenges every week for five whole weeks finishing on january 4th the more challenges you complete the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards so are you ready to crush the holidays play the holiday crush now download it from the app store google play or windows store for free terms and conditions apply Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.